Please open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 3. Our passage for this morning is Philippians 3, 1 through 3. Again, this Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. I've entitled our series in Philippians, The Evangelistic Psyche. And that's because the purpose of this series is to explore the mindset of the evangelist. This is our mission as Christians to advance the gospel. In fact, I think it's probably fair to say that this is the very purpose of our present existence here on earth. And yet I think that most of us would probably agree that we don't engage in this mission very well. And the reason is not for a lack of understanding, but of proper motivation. Either we're distracted or we're fearful I mean, really, it could be any number of reasons, but whatever the case may be, the problem probably has less to do with whether or not we know how to share our faith and more to do with the fact that we don't want to share our faith. And so in this series, we're taking some time to explore the kind of thinking that accompanies evangelistic zeal. And we're doing this so that we too might rewire our own thoughts and realign our hearts according to this purpose. The subject of our study is the Apostle Paul. Outside of Jesus, he's probably the greatest evangelist who's ever lived. And he writes this letter to the Philippians while he's sitting under house arrest in Rome. The Philippians have just sent Paul this financial gift as a way of trying to thank him, uh, or rather to support him while he's under house arrest. They are one of Paul's most faithful churches in that regard. They were always incredibly willing to financially support Paul's ministry. In this letter, Paul writes to thank them for this gift. He doesn't write to address any particular theological controversy or anything like that, like what we find in some of his other letters. Instead, he more or less writes to them to say, Thank you for your support. This makes this an especially helpful letter to understand the type of thinking that leads a person to lay everything on the line for the gospel because we're getting to see it from both ends. Both Paul and the Philippians have this kind of a mindset. And in this letter, we're getting to eavesdrop on a conversation between the two of them as Paul thanks them for this especially generous gift. So far, we've covered essentially three sections of this letter. There was this greeting and introduction in chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. Uh, There, Paul explained how he prayed for the Philippians. And as we explored that section, we got an up-close look at the types of priorities that shaped Paul's thinking and his mission. After that, Paul provides a kind of missionary report in chapter 1, verses 12 through 26. There, Paul updates the Philippians on his circumstances, and in so doing, he gives us a very clear picture of what drove him to go so far as to actually suffer for the sake of the gospel. Starting in verse 27 of chapter 1, Paul then turns his attention to the Philippians. It would seem that Paul has received news that the Philippians are suffering for their faith as well, only they don't seem to be handling their trial quite as well as Paul. There's this division that's beginning to emerge in the church. The body is starting to grumble against each other in the midst of this suffering. It would seem that they may even be blaming one another for this suffering. 
The root of this fracture would appear to be a kind of selfishness. Basically, the church doesn't want to suffer for someone else's faith. And so as Paul writes this letter, he takes a moment to address this self-centeredness and exhort the church to move and act as one. He exhorts them to, to contend together for the sake of the gospel. Now this morning, we move into a new section of, of Philippians. This section extends from the beginning of chapter 3 all the way into verse 1 of chapter 4. And so to set the stage for our discussion over the next several weeks, I'd like to begin this morning's message by reading this section in its entirety, starting in chapter 3, verse 1. Again, our passage for this morning is Philippians 3, verses 1 through 3. Let's begin by reading this text in its context, starting at the beginning of Philippians 3 and continuing through chapter 4, verse 1. Paul writes this, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me, and it is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision, who worship, the spirit, who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus had made, has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. In March of 1887, Charles Spurgeon published the first of two anonymously written articles 
entitled The Downgrade, in his magazine The Sword and the Trowel. In these articles, the author, a personal friend of Spurgeon by the name of Robert Schindler, provided a brief analysis of the factors that often precipitate doctrinal decline in otherwise healthy churches and organizations. The articles received modest attention at first, but then in August of that year, Spurgeon himself wrote and published an article entitled Another Word on the Downgrade. And in this article, he claimed that the sort of doctrinal slippage described in these previous articles was not merely a past reality, but a present one. And to quote one author, it landed like a bombshell. It sent shockwaves throughout the Baptist Union to which Spurgeon belonged in British evangelicalism. It reverberated throughout the entire Protestant world. The debate that ensued became known as the downgrade controversy. And it, it defined the final years of Spurgeon's life. For some, it became a final testament to Spurgeon's undying commitment to gospel faithfulness. For others, it came to be regarded as an unfortunate blemish on an otherwise impeccable lifetime of ministry. So what was the chief argument of the downgrade controversy? What was Spurgeon so concerned about? What was he fighting for? Well, quite simply, he was concerned that in an effort to be accepted by the surrounding culture, certain ministers were very subtly introducing deceptive and dangerous heresies into the English Baptist Union. A quote from another word on the downgrade captures the sentiment well. Spurgeon writes, he says, Our solemn conviction is that things are much worse in many churches than they seem to be and are rapidly trending downward. Read those newspapers which represent the broad school of dissent and ask yourself, how much further could, could they go? What doctrine remains to be abandoned? What other truth to be the object of contempt? A new religion has been initiated, which is no more Christianity than chalk is cheese. And this religion, being destitute of moral honesty, palms itself off as the old faith with slight improvements. And on this plea usurps pulpits, which were erected for gospel preaching. Every generation is going to face its own kind of downgrade controversy. And ours is no different. We live in a hostile world, one that's strongly opposed to the message of the gospel. And this means that it's inevitable that as we proclaim this message, we are bound to encounter conflict. And as the church encounters this conflict, it's going to consistently encounter the very strong temptation to avoid this conflict by making the gospel more palatable and less threatening to outsiders. The gospel is strong drink after all. Don't get me wrong, the gospel is good drink. It's incredibly sweet. But at the same time, there are elements to this message that are also very bitter as well. The sinfulness of mankind, the absolute authority of Christ, the wrath of God against the wicked, and the total inability of man to save himself from that wrath apart from God's redeeming grace, these truths are very hard to accept. And so because the world spews out this message once it tastes this bitterness, the church faces this constant temptation to avoid that confrontation by watering down the gospel and diluting it to the point that all that remains 
is a very faint kind of sweetness. The church has faced this kind of temptation throughout the ages, and it's no different in our day and age. In Spurgeon's day, this temptation came in the form of theological liberalism. The world had adopted a set of scientific conclusions that made certain biblical teachings incredibly offensive, or perhaps better stated, foolish. The idea of miracles, for instance, or a literal six-day creation, the deity of Christ, the virgin birth, the resurrection, even the concept of an inspired scripture, these were wholly unacceptable to a world that had come to the conclusion that there was nothing real, truly real which could not be touched and seen and tested. And this meant that the church then was faced with a choice. Either it could continue to hold these truths, these truths that are actually very essential to the gospel, or it could compromise for the sake of peace. The one option would provoke scorn from the world. The church would be laughed at for their very obvious foolishness in the world's eyes. The other would lead them into a kind of safety. Spurgeon's concern was that many were choosing this latter option, and in so doing, they were actually gutting the gospel of its doctrinal foundations. In our day and age, this temptation probably comes in the form of social liberalism. This isn't to say that the world has changed its position with respect to modernism's scientific conclusions. The world more or less continues to hold many of the same metaphysical assumptions that it held to in the 19th century. It's just that Christians have already split into two different camps on this issue. Some have sided with Spurgeon's opponents in accepting theological liberalism. Others have sided with Spurgeon and his ilk by rejecting it. Point being, the church has already fought this battle, and for many, it's not something they're really wrestling with anymore. They've embraced the fact that the world is going to regard their theology as foolish. The issue now is that as the world has continued down the path that was cleared by philosophical secularism, they have embraced certain moral and ethical conclusions that are exerting a new kind of pressure upon the church. This is actually perhaps the more threatening of the two types of rejection, whereas the only thing that the church had to lose in this previous conflict was its intellectual credibility. This conflict is different. Because as the world moves from metaphysical reality into the ethics and morals which are shaped by that reality, it naturally travels into the realm of law and government. And this produces a very new threat for the church one that Paul and the Philippians would have been very familiar with. Because now it's not just our intellectual credibility that's at stake, but perhaps even eventually our personal freedom. And so again, the church has a choice to make. Will it choose to make certain compromises for the sake of peace? Or will it continue to hold its ground and proclaim not just the theological components of the gospel, but its moral and ethical implications as well, and without apology? This is not a minor question to ask ourselves. Again, our purpose as Christians is to proclaim Christ. And we cannot do that effectively if we do not proclaim an accurate gospel. And please understand what I'm getting at when I say this. I'm not just saying that compromise can lead us to the point that the gospel we proclaim no longer saves. 
Though that's certainly one possibility. This is one of the threats that men like Spurgeon perceived with the theological compromise of the 19th century. It's like he said in the quote I just read, the message that emerged from that series of compromises was no more Christian than chalk is cheese, he said. And yet it still palmed itself off as genuine Christianity. And this made it especially dangerous because while it still promised life, it had been so thoroughly eviscerated from the truths that served as the basis of that life that it actually ended in death. And listen, it's no different when in an effort to cater to a particular social agenda, we compromise God's standards for righteousness. When we begin to adjust the list of sins that a person must repent from in order to fully embrace a relationship with Jesus Christ, we become no different than the Old Testament prophets who would proclaim peace, peace, when there is no peace. The effect of compromise here is the same as the compromises of the 19th century. If we're not careful, we can end up proclaiming a gospel that proclaims life, but which produces death. So yes, it is more than possible to make compromises which actually eviscerate the gospel of its life-giving power. But what I'm driving at here is more than this. You see, one of the unfortunate side effects of diluting a strong drink is that you ultimately end up washing out what makes the drink appealing as well. And it's no different with the gospel. Once you remove those elements that offend, there's actually nothing left to draw the world in either. In removing the bitterness, you remove the sweetness as well, and the result is a drink that's so weak it's no longer worth drinking. You go back to those elements that I mentioned a moment ago, the sinfulness of man, the wrath of God, the inability of man to redeem himself apart from God's grace. And those are elements that are, in a sense, very bitter. And yet they're also part of what make the gospel so very sweet and appealing at the same time. You know, you can talk about the love of God, for instance. But what magnifies the love of God more? Is it the thought that God is relatively indifferent about our sin, but sees how sin is hurting us and so acts to save us from ourselves? Or is it the thought that God actually hates sin, that our sin infuriates Him to the degree that in and of ourselves we are objects of His wrath, and that God then chooses to demonstrate His grace by suffering the full extent of that wrath Himself for us in our place so that we might receive eternal life? I'd venture it's the second option that's the more appealing. And it's not even close. Like God's wrath against sin actually serves to magnify the love and grace of God. Meaning the bitterness and the sweetness of the gospel actually go hand in hand. You can't eliminate one without by necessity eliminating the other. And if you want to see the proof of this, just look at what's happened to those denominations that have chosen to embrace theological liberalism. They're a shell of what they once were. They're no longer multiplying like they once did. Their numbers have dwindled to the point that they're almost completely dead. It's sort of ironic, isn't it? They tried to preserve their cultural relevance through theological compromise, and the result is that they become utterly irrelevant. 
No one cares what they have to say anymore. And the reason is because they don't have anything to say that's worth hearing. Spurgeon noted this very thing already occurring in his own day and age. In another work concerning the downgrade, he wrote the following. And before I give you this quote, I, I just I want to I let you know what he's talking about here, the terms uh, that he's using here. He uses the term nonconformity and dissenters. These refer to those denominations which dissented by refusing to conform to the Church of England. Uh, basically, just brief church history here, as the Church of England made its own attempts at compromise during the reign of Queen Elizabeth and King James, you had those who tried to remain in the Church of England in order to purify it. We know that group today as the Puritans. Most of this group then chose to eventually break away from the Church of England after the 1662 Uniformity Act. Uh, this group thus became known as the dissenters or the nonconformists. And that would include not, uh, denominations like the Presbyterians, Methodists, Baptists, uh, all these denominations who were not a part of the Anglican Church. Unfortunately, many of these groups only ended up compromising anyways in subsequent generations. Um, it's actually really interesting. Uh, again, I take the time to say this to give you some context for this quote, but um, I recently learned that the oldest continuous-use church building in America, meaning the oldest church building that has been used exclusively as a church since the time of its construction, is Old Ship Church in Hingham, Massachusetts. It was built by Puritans, meaning it was built by those who dissented from theological compromise in the Church of England so strongly that they actually sailed across an ocean so they wouldn't have to conform to these practices. It was erected in 1681, and today it hosts a Unitarian Universalist congregation. Speaking of this kind of downgrade, Spurgeon writes this. An eminent minister who is well-versed in the records of nonconformity remarked to us the other day that he feared history was about to repeat itself among dissenters. In days gone by, they aimed at being thought respectable, judicious, moderate, and learned, and in consequence, they abandoned the Puritanic teaching with which they started and toned down their doctrines. The spiritual life, which had been the impelling cause of their descent, declined almost to death's door, and the very existence of evangelical nonconformity was threatened. Then came the outburst of living godliness under Whitfield and Wesley, and with it new life for descent and increased influence in every direction. Alas, many are returning to the poisoned cups which drugged that declining generation when it surrendered itself to Unitarian lethargy. Too many ministers are toying with the deadly cobra of another gospel in the form of modern thought. And this is what he says. He says, as a consequence, their congregations are thinning. The more spiritual of their members join the brethren or some other company of believers unattached. While the more wealthy and show-loving with some of unquestionable devoutness go off to the Church of England. And some Spurgeon notes, these congregations die. The churches that adopt compromise water down their message so far that it's not even worth drinking anymore. I mean, a Unitarian Universalist congregation? You know, basically, you're telling me it doesn't matter what I believe, I'm going to heaven? Then why even bother showing up? Right? You see my point here? A message like that may not offend anyone, but it's not worth listening to either. It's not saying anything of meaning spiritual substance. And so congregations like these, they die. 
And this is what I mean when I say that we cannot proclaim Christ effectively if we do not have an accurate gospel. If we allow the fear of conflict to lead us to in any way dilute the faith that was once delivered to the saints, we may not only get to a point that we're proclaiming a gospel that doesn't actually save, but even before we get there, we may well end up proclaiming a message so amorphous and weak that it's not worth hearing. And so I'll say this one more time. This is not a minor question. How a church handles the threat of compromise will define its effectiveness on its mission. For it isn't with an outright rejection of the faith that a gospel-preaching church dies. No, rather its death occurs incrementally. In very small degrees. Death by a thousand paper cuts. This is how a gospel-preaching church dies. Now, I realize that this is a rather extended introduction, (laughs) to say the least. But the reason why I say all of this is to stress the importance of what we're dealing with over the next several weeks as we come into this new section of Philippians. What I want you to understand is that the Philippians were a very faithful church. These were not half-hearted believers. Again, if there was any church that partnered with Paul in his ministry, it was the church at Philippi. Paul even practically says as much towards the end of chapter 4. Philippians 4.15, he says, When I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. This was the only church in Macedonia that put their money where their mouth is and made an effort to financially support Paul's missionary endeavors. And when Paul came around again asking for money to send to the saints in Jerusalem... Again, they not only contributed, but in 2 Corinthians 8, Paul says they did so joyously and abundantly, even though they themselves were suffering extreme poverty. Do you understand here? This this is not a half-hearted church. This is the church that heard that Paul was in prison, and without any request from Paul whatsoever, cobbled together an offering and sent it to Rome with Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus, by the way, who we saw last week as a man who is even willing to die in his service to Christ. I mean, they don't just know doctrine. They lived it. And yet here in today's passage, Paul warns them about adopting circumcision. He says, verse 2, look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. And this exhortation to avoid the adoption of circumcision, this is going to serve as the basis of his instruction in chapter 3. In chapter 3, Paul is warning this incredibly faithful church to avoid the adoption of circumcision. Now, I think you have to ask yourself, Why in the world would a church like the one at Philippi be in any way tempted to adopt circumcision of all things? And I know we could go to places like the book of Galatians and witness the efforts of what we call Judaizers. Basically, you had some early Jewish Christians who had trouble distinguishing uh, the promise of salvation from the promises made to the Jewish people through Abraham. And so they believed that for Gentiles to receive salvation, it was necessary for them to become a part of the people of Israel through the act of circumcision. And from what follows, there's really no doubt that even though that debate was settled about 10 years before Paul wrote this letter, 
that's certainly part of what's going on here. The Philippians are starting to consider that maybe they do need to adopt this practice, or at the very least, Paul anticipates that they may soon begin to make that consideration. And the question is, why? Why is it, like, what is it that's making them begin this consideration now? Now of all times. And I think we may very well discover the answer when we consider the context for this letter. Keep in mind what Paul says uh, at the end of chapter 1. He says that it has been granted to the Philippians that they should suffer for the sake of Christ, quote, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now here I still have. Now, maybe I'm reading the text too closely here, but what would that sort of a conflict look like? I mean, if it's the same conflict, both that the Philippians saw that Paul had, and now hear that he still has, then wouldn't it at least be reasonable to conclude that it has something to do with the fact that Paul is about to stand trial before the Romans? This is the type of conflict that they witnessed when Paul was in Philippi. Philippi was a Roman colony, remember, meaning that uh, even though it lay in Macedonia, it was a thoroughly Roman city. Well, when Paul was in Philippi, he exercised a demon-possessed slave girl. The slave girl's owners were none too happy about this, and so they tried to get Paul arrested. And what was the charge? They said, these men are Jews. And they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to practice. Basically, he was charged with insurrection for activities subversive to Rome. By the way, the same charge followed Paul in the very next city he traveled to, Thessalonica. There, a group of Jews were his persecutors. They had become jealous of Paul, most probably because of the success he was having among the Gentiles. Well, they tried to seize Paul and Silas, and when they couldn't find Paul, they dragged out Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the whole world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, Jesus. Again, the charge was insurrection. You'll note that this was the same charge that the Jews laid against Jesus when they wanted to pressure Pilate to put him to death. They understood that the Romans wouldn't kill Jesus for any of the things that they actually wanted to kill him for. I mean, the Romans could care less about blasphemy against the Jewish God and still less about any violation of their precious customs, right? And so what was the charge that they laid before Pilate? It was that Jesus claimed to be the king of the Jews. That's insurrection against Rome. And if Pilate didn't act on that charge, it could indicate that he was complicit in a Jewish conspiracy. Of course, Paul presently sits in Rome, about to stand trial before Caesar. And so this is more than likely the conflict that the Philippians both saw in Paul and now hear that he still has as he sits in Rome, this conflict which they themselves are now experiencing. They're more than likely facing some kind of state-sponsored persecution, and it probably has something to do with their allegiance to Jesus as king. 
This probably makes sense of what happens at the end of chapter 3 when Paul reminds them that their citizenship is in heaven and from it they await a Savior who will eventually subjugate all things. Paul is saying that because this is partly what's being called into question. The Philippians are being questioned about their loyalty to Rome and their citizenship as Romans. From what Paul says at the end of chapter 1, it would also seem as if the weight of this persecution is significant enough that at least some in the church are on the edge of cracking under the pressure. I mean, Paul's telling them that he wants to hear that they're standing firm for the faith of the gospel, not frightened in anything by their opponents. Paul even has to give this extended exhortation where he tells the church to be united in their faith and to put away their grumbling and complaining against each other. So the pressure is already significant enough that it's causing at least some fracture in the church. And the implication sure seems to be that Paul at least anticipates that the Philippians may be on the edge of actually cracking. Now then, what does that have to do with circumcision? Paul seems to be exhorting the Philippians to stand firm for the gospel as they endure this persecution. This exhortation actually bleeds over into chapters 3 and 4. If you note in chapter 4, verse 1, Paul concludes this section which deals with the threat of circumcision by saying, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. So this whole business about circumcision would seem to be connected to this exhortation to persevere under trial as well. How? Why? What what does this threat of circumcision have to do with the Philippians' perseverance in the face of religious persecution? And I think the answer is that they see circumcision as a potential compromise that could mitigate their suffering. You see, the Jews enjoyed certain religious protections under Roman law. The Romans demanded, uh, typically demanded religious syncretism from the peoples they conquered, meaning they demanded that conquered peoples adopt the Roman gods in exchange for adopting their gods into the Roman system. And they likewise demanded subjects to do things like burn incense to the emperor in an act of veneration and worship. They didn't make these types of demands from the Jews, though. The Jews' monotheism was so deeply ingrained and the exile had taught them the consequence of secretism so thoroughly that they had become to a point where they would rather die than worship another god. They were fiercely loyal to Yahweh. And so rather than deal with the fallout from that whole mess, the Romans eventually realized that the easiest way to subjugate the Jews was to allow them a certain measure of religious freedom. Well, one of the things that you have to understand is that when Christianity started, it wasn't seen as a different religion from Judaism, as it is viewed today. Rather, it was seen as an intra-Jewish conflict. Basically, it was a kind of new Jewish sect. And this meant that initially, these same protections that had been extended to the Jews extended to Christians as well. Because in the eyes of the Romans, they weren't any different. However, as the distinctions between these two groups became more and more evident, and as Christianity came to be perceived as an entirely different religion, a new religion even, those protections eventually dropped away. Now, it's not entirely clear here who is bringing this suffering to Philippi. 
Maybe it's a slave girl's parents or other Philippian citizens like them. However, I think far likelier is the scenario that this is a group of overzealous Jews. Keep in mind, the Jews were the main opponents to the church at this time. They were the only ones who really cared what the Christians were doing enough to persecute them. And some, of course, were incredibly zealous in their desire to stomp out this new teaching. Paul himself, for instance, once got papers and traveled over 100 miles all the way from Jerusalem to Damascus to hunt down and seize Christians. And he wasn't alone in this. The Jews in Thessalonica were apparently just such a group as well. Remember, there weren't many Jews in Philippi, apparently not even enough to form a synagogue. It was different 100 miles down the road in Thessalonica. There was a synagogue there. And the Jews in that city hated Paul's teaching so much that they didn't just try to seize Paul there, but when they heard that he had traveled 50 miles down the road to Berea and was preaching successfully in the synagogue there, they actually followed him and chased him in that city, out of that city actually, as well. So I don't think it's any stretch here to think that the persecution the Philippians are facing is being fueled by the Jews, just like Romans, Paul's Roman imprisonment has been fueled by the Jews. And if that is the case, then this Judaizing influence that once infiltrated the churches in Galatia is suddenly going to appear a lot more appealing to the Philippians. Understand what I mean here. I don't think the Philippians are in any way tempted to simply turn away from their faith in Christ. I mean, the way that Paul speaks to them, how he's going to counteract this Judaizing influence in verse 3, for instance, it's apparent that they still have a strong faith in Jesus Christ. They love Jesus. So it's not as if they're about to turn away from Christianity, per se. But there's been this teaching going around that Christ alone is not enough. That, that one must have faith in Christ and live in accordance with the Jewish law. Now, it's possible but that the Philippians haven't given that teaching much consideration before, but if the charge that's causing this suffering is that the Philippians adhere to a different religion, one which doesn't enjoy the kind of religious protections that have been extended to the Jews, then you can start to see how this teaching might start to take on a fresh appeal. After all, what this would mean for them, if they were to adopt this, is a way out. Because if the Philippians could demonstrate that they do adhere to the law of Moses, then they could make the argument that they really are Jewish. And at least that, at, at that point, they could try to argue that their faith in Jesus is actually protected under Roman law. In short, the adoption of circumcision could be seen as a way of putting an end to their suffering. You guys know how this works, don't you? You've probably seen this happen before. A group of Christians say they believe one thing, sometimes for hundreds or even thousands of years. Society comes to a conclusion that strongly contradicts that belief. And then these Christians go back to their Bible and they say, hey, you know what? We just realized that we read that wrong. Turns out the Bible actually agrees with you. You've seen that happen, right? They don't reject the Bible. They just change what it says. Isn't that weird? Listen, this is what suffering can do. I want to be clear here. I'm not saying that the Christians who do this 
are being intentionally deceptive or something like that, I would gather that many of them really do end up thinking that they got the Bible wrong the first time. I'm just saying that we can be incredibly motivated to convince ourselves that an alternate reading of Scripture is true when we have something to gain from it. I would venture that this is what's going on in Philippi. If it hasn't started already, Paul at least considers the possibility that the Philippians are going to begin to entertain options they hadn't entertained before. There are going to be arguments made against the sound teaching of the gospel, and these arguments are going to appear more appealing than what they may otherwise because of what the Philippians have to gain if those arguments happen to be true. And so as Paul responds to this either real or at least potential threat, He tells them, verse 1, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same thing to you is no trouble to me, and it is safe for you. The word for safe here, by the the way, it's the word hasphales. And in some contexts, it's translated as safe. In others, it's translated as certain or definite. That should give you a sense of the range of that word. The idea is that what Paul is telling them is true. And in telling them this same gospel again, he is giving them a reliable word that will keep them grounded in the truth. I like the way the New American Standard Bible translates it. There Paul says, it is a safeguard to you. It is a protection to you for me to say this again. This is a kind of safety measure that Paul is probably preemptively employing because he understands this threat can tempt the Philippians to make compromises, critical compromises. Basically, he sees the valley on the horizon and he knows that if the Philippians aren't careful, they're going to end up on the downgrade and they're going to slip into some very serious doctrinal error. And so as a preemptive strike, Paul tries to install some breaks on this. He reiterates the gospel that he wants to deliver to them so that the next time these false teachers come around, there won't be any confusion. It may bring the Philippians some very temporary relief to adopt this theological compromise, but make no mistake, it is thoroughly outside the faith. In the words of Galatians 5, if they as Gentiles end up adopting circumcision, thinking that they are in any way justified by the law, then they are severed from Christ. They are outside the faith. It's a conclusion, therefore, that must be avoided at all costs. There can be no compromise. This is what we're dealing with as we move into chapter 3. Paul is addressing the threat of theological downgrade, the sort of doctrinal slippage that can ultimately shipwreck a person's faith. That's going to be the subject of our study in chapter 3. And of course, the very first set of instructions that Paul gives the Philippians is to watch out. Beware, he says. Because again, this kind of slippage doesn't happen instantaneously. It happens in increments. It happens by degrees meaning it's very subtle. The people who end up on the downgrade, they don't mean to end up there. But once they're on it, it's very hard to get off. 
I think a quote by Schindler in the original downgrade article captures the idea well. As Schindler traced previous generations of downgrade, he noted that one early symptom of downgrade occurred in the, in the denial of God's sovereignty in salvation. I think we'll see this same symptom occur next week as Paul himself explains some of the accompanying marks of teachers who would lead the Philippians into their own kind of downgrade. Anyway, Schindler noted this as well, this denial of God's sovereignty and salvation. And so he made a very strong connection between the abandonment, actually, of Calvinistic doctrine and the decline into theological liberalism. And speaking of this decline, he notes how hard it is to stop once it's started. He says, as is usual with people on an incline, some who got on the downgrade went further than they intended, showing that it is easier to get on than to get off, and that where there is no break, it is very difficult to stop. Those who turn from Calvinism may not have dreamed of denying the proper deity of the Son of God, renouncing faith in His atoning death and justifying righteousness, and denouncing the doctrine of human depravity, the need of divine renewal, and the necessity of the Holy Spirit's gracious work, in order that these men might become new creatures. But, he says, dreaming or not dreaming, this result became a reality. Again, this is the great danger of gospel downgrade. No one ever begins by saying, I'm going to deny the faith. The error infiltrates the church subtly, and then it takes them there by degrees. The Christian begins by thinking that they're fighting for the faith, actually. And as they continue to give up one small piece of ground to the enemy after another, one tactical retreat after another, before long they discover that they've yielded the field entirely. And they've lost the battle. Like all their forms of temptation, compromise looks appealing in the moment, but in the end it brings the same outcome that sin always brings. And that's death. And so if we're going to avoid the kind, this kind of error in the church, if we're going to safeguard our own proclamation of the gospel, this is where it begins. It begins by being on the lookout. We must be on guard and watch against the early warning signs for this slippage in the church. Even more specifically, we must guard ourselves against those avenues through which this kind of compromise enters the church. What is that and how do we guard against it? That's what we're going to look at in greater detail as we come back and take another more up-close and personal look at Philippians 1 through 3 next week. Let's close in prayer.